dark, isn't it? Have we got a few lights, more lights here? Are they blown? Okay. Let's get the lights up. Um, yeah, we are into our final chapters in 2 Corinthians. Um, I can never find 2 Corinthians, so I'll give you the page number, 1165. Um, these final chapters, it's been quite a marathon, hasn't it? So we should be quite proud of ourselves. We are coming in to land. And this morning, it's chapter 12. And uh, I've called this, What's the Problem? What's the Problem? And just for a moment, uh, I want us to think to ourselves, what's the biggest problem facing me at the moment? Just think to yourselves, what's the biggest problem facing you at the moment? It may be something very recent, very new in your experience. It may be something that's been following you down the years, with you for years. It may concern a relationship at home or at work. It may uh, be something physical, a disability or an illness. Maybe something to do with your circumstances, maybe finances or loss or hardship of some sort. Maybe a habit that's got out of control. But problems, problems are part of our everyday lives, aren't they? Big and small. Problems are always going to be there. And sometimes, sometimes they can be overwhelming, making us feel very weak, very vulnerable, very insecure, very frightened, very frustrated. Well, how do we cope? What do we do? Because Paul has a problem in Corinth. His reputation has been undermined. His ministry has been ridiculed. His character has been brought into question. And most serious of all, his message has been diluted. And Paul, Paul realized how damaging this was. This, you know, this wasn't actually about his own, to do with his own reputation and leadership. This was something much more serious, far worse. You see, by creating a more acceptable version of the Christian message, the false teachers in Corinth, or the super apostles as they like to be known, were actually offering people a false Jesus, a Jesus who no longer needed to suffer, a Jesus who didn't need to give up his heavenly crown. A Jesus who no longer needed to carry a cross. A Jesus who was no longer weak enough to be born in a manger. Because all of this embarrassed them. Didn't fit with their image of a leader. A leader, in their eyes, should be invincible. He should be assured. He should be strong. Not showing these signs of weakness and vulnerability. And Paul, you see, couldn't let this continue. He couldn't let them change the gospel to just suit their own preferences. And so in these final chapters, Paul clashes head-on with these false teachers. And as Mark said last week, this is Paul at his most feisty. The gloves are off. Things move into a different gear as Paul shows he's, he's prepared to play them at their own game. And their game is the boasting game, showing off their strengths. And so in chapter 11, last week, we saw how Paul joins in with their game, but with a sort of ironic twist. Now, it's quite clear that these were uncomfortable chapters, uncomfortable things for Paul to write. In fact, this passage is known as the fool's speech. But he realizes that he has no choice. He has to. He has to join in with their rather pretentious behavior So it's as if Paul is saying, just look back in verse 16 of chapter 11. He says, look, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting 
You know, in other words, it seems that he's saying, to gain a hearing with you lot, one has to behave like a fool. Well, I'll play you. I'll play you. I'll play along with your silly games, and I'll blow my own trumpet, trumpet for a while if that's what you want. And so, to begin with, he pretends to go along with the game. He shows off a bit like a sort of prize poodle at Crufts, you know, strutting around the arena, uh, showing off his incredible, his impeccable pedigree. Just look at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. <laughs> Do you see? Paul's boasting. Paul's boasting. He's joining in with their game. But his boasting takes a different turn as he then begins to list his so-called heroic exploits. And those are just from 23 onwards. We looked at them a bit last week. But they include, don't they, the floggings, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the danger, the sleep deprivation, the cold, the nakedness, list goes on. And, and as I read it, I just felt there was a sort of touch of the Bruce Willis, you know, in a diehard movie. I don't know if you've uh, seen, seen him when he emerges, you know, usually out of the smoke in his sort of sweaty, grimy vest and bloodied feet. You know, usually he's lost his shoes by then. You know, but the interesting thing is Paul makes it sound not so much like a wild and fearless venture, but rather tedious and relentless just another day at the office. It's as though he's telling them there's nothing heroic or glamorous about this. In fact, quite the opposite. Just look at verse 29. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? I'm, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he goes on to say how he, 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 he was a coward. He's a, basically a coward. You know, he ran away. He ran away from the opposition in Damascus. His mission to church plant there failed, and he tells us he had to be smuggled out, smuggled out over the walls in a wicker basket. I mean, so embarrassing. This wasn't the hero making a smooth exit. This was the leader running away. Now, why on earth did he remind them of this story? Why did he talk like this? Well, it's surely to show that failure is part of his story. And it's okay. That's okay. Paul shows that he's fearless. Yeah. He's fearless when it comes to admitting his weakness, when it comes to facing temptation, when it comes to acknowledging his failures. These, he says, these are his true credentials in Christ. Not the superficial stuff he listed just now. This is his CV. This is his resume. And it's interesting, I was looking through the brochure of one of the big uh, sort of Christian conferences back in the summer, and I was drawn to the descriptions of the various, that the various seminar speakers had given of themselves. Now, they made an interesting reading in the light of this passage. Just listen to a few of the phrases that they used. I've held a series of senior appointments. I'm pioneering a fast-growing multi-site church in a big city center. I've been ranked as one of the 20 most influential business thinkers alive today. My website and YouTube clips have been used by 12 million people to date. I'm an author of many best-selling books. But Paul says his credentials are hardship, weakness, um, temptation, failure. Now, I wonder, would you go to his seminar? Would you buy his book? Would you attend his church? So that's his credentials. There's a major problem with them. 
They don't match up. And what about his Christian experience? There's a problem there too. Let's move on to read a bit of chapter 12, just the first six verses. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on Uh, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about, about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Paul has this extraordinary experience of God. I mean, it's definitely him. He goes on in verse 9 to say, uh, you know, to claim it as his. He says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven. So extraordinary, he talks about it. He talks about himself as though he was another person. And he says of this experience, it was extremely rare, so rare. This this was 14 years ago. He's never experienced anything like it before or since, he says. It was extremely rare. It was extraordinarily vivid. It was very special. And it was peculiarly personal and private, so private that he doesn't actually want to say much about it. And it's funny, isn't it? Most of us are frightened that people don't think highly enough of us. Paul is frightened that people will think too highly of him, which makes him very reluctant, he says, to say much about this vision. Very reluctant to look as though he's, he's, he's being super spiritual or claiming any special position or privilege because of it. And maybe it's good. Maybe it's good that we don't hear any any more about Paul's experience. It allows each of us to have our own. And for each of us, you know, we need to believe that we are going to be. There are going to be those one-off encounters with God that will be extraordinary landmarks in our Christian lives. I mean, Paul's experience was let's let's admit it. It was off off the off the charts. You know, it's another league of its own. But we can each have our own experience. We do have our own experiences of God that we hold on to as very personal, very precious. I was a bit diffident to to share this, but uh, and actually it's something that I haven't often shared. But I remember one of my most special moments with God was about six months into becoming a Christian. And I came up to London. Uh, I was a music student. I was, I'd been really looking forward to it, but actually everything, just everything started to fall apart. And I just crashed. I, get, I just get, I really sort of just went very low. And uh, I remember I was in digs in Putney, and I just couldn't even go back into my bedroom, and I just sank on the floor in the corridor. And I just called out to God, called out to him. And it's as if you just came and just wrapped me up in a great big sleeping bag. And he said things to me. He spoke to me and he allowed me to speak to him. And it was an extraordinary experience. And all I know is that my, my Christian life from that moment on just went into a different gear. And it's not that, we, not that we live off those experiences or boast about them. But we hold them as very precious, don't we? Very personal. And we should look out for them. We should expect them. We hold them as a very special and very significant in our Christian walk. 
So Paul had a problem with the super apostles in Corinth. How could he? How could he uncover their superficiality, the falseness of their teaching and, and experience without sort of sinking to their level? How could he do this? But Paul also had other problems. Let's read on. Verse 7 in chapter 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there he is admitting to them, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, she says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, he says, about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had a problem with his circumstances. A thorn in the flesh, we're told, like a, sort of, like a splinter, which had lodged itself in and just he couldn't get rid of it, couldn't be removed. Constantly irritating and distracting him, draining his energy. And inevitably, you know, there's been much speculation over the years as to what exactly was this thorn in the flesh. Was it some, something, was it a persistent temptation? Was it the constant pressure of these opponents, these false teachers on him? Was it a sickness such as malaria, quite possible, or a disability such as bad eyesight? Or some have even suggested, can you believe it, it could have been a nagging wife. But I have the answer. I have the answer in just three words. Absolutely no idea. And I think it's good, you know, that we don't know. We don't know what it was because it means we can each relate to it in any shape or form. What's our personal thorn in the flesh? What is it for us that pulls us down again and again? You know, is it maybe low self-esteem, lack of confidence? Or is it the opposite? Is it pride, an independent spirit? Is it a person, you know, a difficult boss, an impossible colleague, or closer to home? Is it a physical thing like chronic back pain? Is it some other insecurity or fear or temptation that just won't let go, won't leave us alone? It could be anything, anything that makes us feel, if that went away, I could cope. If that went away, things would be different. And you know the interesting thing about this infliction of Paul's, this thorn, verse 7, we're told it's both given by God and it's a messenger of Satan, both at the same time. So Paul had a problem with his circumstances. And alongside that, he also had a problem with God. Verse 8, three times, three times, I, I, I assume means more, and, you know, more times than that, again and again, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. God's not doing anything. He's not answering me. Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he take it away? And the thought that God doesn't care or won't act just makes the problem even more painful. I imagine that many of us, many of us can relate to that feeling, that experience. And thirdly, there's a problem with me. There's a problem about how I react in and towards my circumstances. I wonder if you noticed how verse 7 begins and ends with me. To keep me from being conceited, Paul says, and to torment me, or in other versions it says to keep me from being elated. 
You see, Paul knows himself well enough to know that if he didn't have the problem, whatever that was, he'd be tempted to become conceited, to become independent of God. The problem makes him more aware of his weakness, yeah. But more importantly, it makes him lean into God. You see, my problem is never my circumstances alone. It's about my response, how I respond to them, how I respond to God in the middle of it all. There's a problem with me. So what do I do with my problems? What do I do with them? Well, Paul gives us three specific actions, three things that he did with his problems. I speak to God, God speaks to me, and I speak to myself. I speak to God. I plead with him, verse 8, again and again, pleading with God. Now, what does that look like? Well, the Psalms show us what real pleading looks like, don't they? They show us in, in very tangible form how to call out to God, telling him how it feels, asking, yeah, asking for release, for relief. The psalmist, it seems, is never afraid to say it as it is, you know, to ask those tough questions. How long, God? How much more? Why? Why me? But they don't end there. That's their starting point, but not their end point. There's nearly always a progression. They don't get stuck at what I call the whining phase. And that's what we, that's what I need to make sure of, need to watch out for, that I don't get stuck on the whining phase. Let's be real with God, yes. Let's be honest with how it is, but let's make sure we don't stop there. Let's make sure we move on from the quest for why to the search for what. You know, what are you doing here, Lord? What do you want me to learn through this? Submitting our will rather than dictating the terms. That's the first action, speaking to God honestly, openly, persistently, humbly. And secondly, Paul says, he spoke to me. Verse 9, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and things start to change. Because when we get to that point of asking the what rather than the why, then we're ready to hear God's voice. And thirdly, I spoke to myself. You see, if we've heard God's voice, then we can talk to ourselves, reason with ourselves. We can say to ourselves things we maybe never dreamt we'd be able to say. I can say to myself, I can now bear this. I can bear this problem because God has told me, beginning of verse 9, God has told me his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in my weakness. God has spoken. And I can give up that time-consuming business of saying, how am I going to cope? How am I going to get through this? Because he's promised me his grace will be enough. It's going to be okay. And even more surprising, maybe even more unbelievable, I can be thankful for it. End of verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. You know, nothing has necessarily changed outwardly. The thorn is still there, but things have changed or started to change inwardly. I've changed. I'm not afraid of weakness or failure or uncertainty in the same way anymore. I know myself, but I know my God too. My God, whose grace, he tells me, is sufficient, whose power is made perfect in weakness. 
One commentator says this, it's the primary qualification of any man or woman who's going to be used by God that they should be painfully aware of their inadequacies and their incompetence. Painfully aware of their inadequacies and incompetence. And you know, every time I prepare a talk, I'm just waiting now. I'm waiting for that point, that, that point in preparation when I'm going to look at the stuff I've prepared. I'm just going to say, you know what? This is rubbish. This is absolute rubbish. And I just look at it and I say, yeah, I'm going to have to start again. I'm going to have to start again. I'm going to have to get back down on my knees and say, God, you know, you have got to help me here because otherwise I'm in real trouble. I've got to get up on Sunday and say something and it's rubbish. What am I going to do? And you know, that's good for me. That's good for me. And in fact, if I ever get to the point when I feel I can do it, when I don't feel weak and helpless and inadequate, that's the point when I must stop doing this. I must stop doing this stuff. Weakness is good. Weakness is okay if it makes us fall back on God. And we all recognize, don't we, that this message isn't easy. It's messy and uncomfortable. We don't like it. We all want to be, or at least seem to be, strong and competent and in control. We don't like making ourselves vulnerable. But you know, it's at that point of vulnerability that God, God steps in. God proves his strength, his power. Because every time we trust him that little bit more, it's his power in our weakness. Every time we risk something that's beyond ourselves, it's his power in our weakness. Every time we give over our rights, it's his power in our weakness. Power in weakness is at the very core of the gospel. But most of us, if we're honest, only know power in strength. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said this, didn't he? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised so that no one may boast before him. And God is saying to us, you know, you're more useful to me with your weaknesses than without them. And God seems to insist on using weak things, doesn't he? People who aren't perfect. And this is nothing new, is it? Is it? Oswald Chambers says, all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies. I mean, just think back. Think back into the Old Testament. So many stories of the unexpected, the weak, the quite frankly inappropriate people God chose for his kingdom work. Just think about it. God needed a father. Do you remember? To father the kingdom of Israel, to give them a hope and a future. You can sort of imagine the conversation going on in the heavenly realms. Is there a good candidate down there? You know, who can we choose? And God sees Abraham, 100 years old, his wife is barren, they can't have kids, and God says, he'll do, he's perfect, I choose him. And you can just imagine the angel's reactions, oh no, no, that's not going to work. God needs a liberator. Who does he choose? Moses, a fugitive and a murderer. He's depressed, he's burned out, he's been on his own for 40 years, and God says, perfect, he'll do, I choose him. God needs a warrior king. Who does he choose? This little teenage boy whose father doesn't even seem to remember he's there. God sees the, no, the, the one no one else has even considered. 
and chooses that one. And it's the same today. He chooses the most unlikely candidates, you and me. And like others before us, we disqualify ourselves, don't we? We all think to ourselves, you know, well, actually, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not mature enough. I'm not, I'm not experienced enough. I'm not strong enough. And we make our excuses. But God says, no, I choose you with all those things, all those weaknesses, because it's going to be your weakness and my strength. That's how it's going to be. That's how it's always been, your weakness and my strength. God delights in using weak things, things that the world despises, because he knows that there are some qualities in the Christian life which we will only gain through suffering and weakness. That's the only way we'll learn them. And most of us, if we're honest, would like to stop. We'd like to stop at the first part of verse 9, at God's rather comforting promise. My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in weakness. That's, that's reassuring for us, isn't it? We can cope with that. But the thrust of this passage isn't about encouragement. It's about challenge. And the challenge is actually in the following sentences when Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's almost as though he's sort of shaking a fist at the enemy, isn't it? What you meant for harm, God will turn for good. You know, you meant to pull me down. You meant to weaken my faith. You meant to destroy me through these things. But God is my refuge and my strength. And I wonder, can we say that? Can we even put our name in that place, in the place of Paul's, and say, for the sake of Christ, I, Christine, I, Paul, I, Dan, I, Sarah, will delight in my weaknesses, in insults. I, Christine, will delight in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And you know, that little phrase is the climax of this letter. When I am weak, then I am strong. And I'd love that little phrase to just keep ringing in our ears as we go out from here, as we go through this next week and the weeks beyond. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's the message of the letter in a nutshell. Strength in weakness. And the challenge is, will we? Will we, will we be able to delight in weakness? Or are we only going to be able to delight in success? So when we face problems, will people say to us, what a great person you are. You know, so brave, so strong. I so admire you. Or will they say, what a great savior they have. What a great savior they have. Look how he holds them steady. Look how he gives them strength. Strength in weakness. This is the heart of Paul's message. This is actually the final put down to the Corinthian mindset. Weakness is strength in God's kingdom because God does things differently from the world. This is another way in which he just turns the world's values upside down. Will we join him? Will we risk this? Will we do this? Let's stand, shall we?